With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On today's episode, we're talking with Alexandra Cunningham, showrunner of Bravo's Dirty John. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's television podcast. I'm Danielle Terciano, Features Editor in Television. And today we have joining us Alexandra Cunningham, who is the showrunner on Dirty John, based on the podcast, or, or I should say inspired by the podcast. Yes, inspired by. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I do, because it is inspired on the podcast, I do want to start by just talking about when you approach fictionalizing it or bringing it to life with actors. How much of the audience do you hope or expect will actually know the story already? And how much do you feel like I have an obligation or a desire to set it up for those who don't know the story? Yeah, I mean, it's that it's that balance, right? It's you want to make the people happy who made it such a success in the first place. And you want to, you know, the kinds of things that maybe you were thinking when you were listening, you would like to see brought to life and you hope those things are in the show. And you want to make sure you cast it in a way where people, maybe it's not exactly what they were thinking, but they're like, oh my God, that person would be great to play that part. But then you also want to think about the people who are coming to the story completely new and unfamiliar and make sure that they can follow it completely independently of knowing where it's going. So, yeah, that's an everyday sort of checking in with yourself. <laughs> like, would I know what was going on if I didn't know what was going on? But also just wanting to make sure you're serving this incredible subject matter material. Yeah. Do you find you also wanted to play with the timeline of the story differently for those reasons or even just embellishing because we obviously get to see perspective from John that right. you don't have in the podcast? Right. Yeah, no, that was definitely one of the things I knew I wanted to do in turning it into scripted was that that was a thing that I could do that, that Chris couldn't do was actually hear from John as opposed to about John. But um, yeah. What was the question? I'm oh, sorry. Just I like in terms to like babble playing with, apparently. Playing with the timelines and, oh, yeah, yeah. and the perspectives. Yeah, I mean, Chris did a lot of playing with the timeline mm -hmm. in the podcast, but maybe not necessarily in a way that would play out uh, in a chronological way and scripted that would be the easiest to follow. That he would sort of bring in things that really created suspense for his narrative that if you did it on a scripted show might come out of nowhere and, and be talking about people that you haven't met, whose names you don't know, who especially up front when you're kind of introducing everyone at the same time it was it, it kind of felt like maybe the tonnage of that was going to be too much for scripted to carry so I, I kind of stretched all the timelines out and then rewove them in a way that it's not exactly linear but it's it's much more linear than the podcast mm -hmm. was uh in a way that I think complements scripted yeah we also the show starts um 
really with Deborah's point of view in yeah. a lot of ways in terms of like what she sees in him, how mm-hmm. she's falling in love with him. How did you approach that in terms of the perspective, but also um, the reasoning? Right. Well, it was funny. I remember when I signed on to do the show, which was less than a year ago, which is, you know, it's probably the fastest uh, timeline I've ever had from, hey, want to do a show to show is going to be on the air. Um, And I I sat down with the L.A. Times people, and one of the first things they asked me was, because they had been able to sort of gauge from the comments on the article and then the podcast, they were like, what are you going to do to combat the perception that Deborah is uh, incredibly stupid? And and I kind of went, I I understand why people say that, but I don't personally feel that way. Mm -hmm. And so that is one of the things that I wanted to do in signing on to do the show was – explain why I feel like her decisions are incredibly relatable. And one of the things that, because the podcast is such a great work of investigative journalism, one of the things it doesn't do is kind of put you in that sort of emotional whirlwind of love that Deborah fell into with John, that it, because it's kind of telling you what happened, you're not having that emotional experience. You're just sort of being told that it happened. Um, even by the characters themselves. Like when Deborah says he treated me like I was the only woman in the world, he treated me like I was a queen, she's just saying it. Yeah, you're, you're not, not seeing it. it. Exactly. So one of the great things I think about scripting something that's nonfiction is that you know once the actors step into those roles, they sort of take away that, that distance that mm-hmm. enables you to judge and they bring you into that emotional experience, especially when you know they're such masters like Connie and Eric and – they're so aspirational anyway that you kind of want to go along with them. But that, yeah, that that, that was uh, one of the things I knew I wanted to do right from the jump. And the pilot really is doing that. The, mm-hmm. That Or, I mean, hopefully it's doing it. Hopefully people think it's doing it. But the goal was to bring people into that, you know, being swept off your feet feeling of just, you know, the only thing that's important is this person who's looking into your eyes and all that and just to kind of show people that it's like, well, you weren't there. You don't know mm-hmm. what it was like for this woman who, you know, she's a self-made multimillionaire. She has 30 employees. She has, you know, a lovely family who loves her. She has all these hallmarks of, of success. And yet, you know, she is kind of old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. And and she has this need for romance in her life that no one, you know, she's been taken advantage a lot because she is a very sort of kind and generous and innocent and open person. I mean, in real life. And, uh, you know, that, that she just really had this yearning for romance. And, you know, unfortunately, she met someone who weaponized that against her and knew that she was a person who uh, wanted to believe the best in people and knew that he could use that. That's what happened. Like, yeah. that doesn't make her stupid. It actually makes her, to me, admirable, especially in such a cynical society that we live in now, that somebody's really just going to take you at face value and you say something and they believe you. And it's really kind of beautiful. And I want people to see that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that was kind of behind a lot of the choices that I made, especially up front. And, I mean, Connie was also attached pretty early on to the project. So what conversations did you have with her in those early stages about Mm. all of these things that you've just talked about, about the way you wanted to see uh, Deborah portrayed and and the way Connie also wanted to bring her to life? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everything I just said was sort of a thing that Connie, uh, Connie had in mind, too, when we first sat down. Because, yeah, I mean, I had read the articles before I read the podcast or listened to the podcast. 
And uh, the articles, it was kind of great to have done it in that order because the articles had embedded photos and yeah. video. And so then when I listened to the podcast, I had people's faces in my head. And I remember the first time I saw a picture of Deborah, I was like, you know, if anyone ever did this, <laughs> obviously Connie Britton should play her because, you know, it's, it's just that writ large on a screen. And uh, and then I happened to be talking to her agent about something and I thought she was on 911. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was well, she on 911. And then he said, well, she's actually only doing it for the first year. And I went, hey, <laughs> you know, she listen to podcasts. You know, could you send this to her? And within 24 hours, she was like, okay, what are we doing? When are we doing it? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, really the, the, the only kind of not – it wasn't even a hurdle. She was just kind of like, are we sure about Bravo? <laughs> and I was like, you know, they, they really are committed to yeah, doing something different avenue. for themselves. Yeah, that they they really were up front, you know, saying, being very honest about that they wanted to kind of ratchet things up. And I thought it was a really smart um, bid by them to pick material like this that dovetails so neatly with what their brand is sort of known to be. But then they kind of want to explode it outward. I thought it was really smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was a, a, a good feeling to have that, like, we're all on the same page about what this is and what it could be. And, yeah, but when Connie and I talked about what we wanted for Deborah, it was important to both of us sort of immediately that we wanted people to understand that this could happen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that we we kind of want people are still going to judge it, obviously, um, but that it won't be because we haven't tried to present the whole picture as far as we can of what happened. And we also kind of wanted to bring some humor into it because I personally am a person who deals with trauma. Um, by cracking jokes, uh, you know, to relieve tension. It's just kind of a, a place that I go. And um, at the and Connie kind of is too. And so she was like, is the show going to be funny? Or are we <laughs> going to try to have humor? And I was like, absolutely, because I don't know how to do this any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, those were sort of our two, like, checking in with each other. Like, we want to make sure that we show that, you know, Deborah's not stupid right. and we're going to try to make the show as funny as we can, given that this was a horrifically traumatic experience for this family. Um, we're going to try to put some humor into it. Right. And it was like, yep. Okay. Break. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So when you do, you know, when you do look at then um, expanding Deborah's perspective, she finds out in the show pretty quickly about just how bad John is. I mean, her daughters were telling her, we don't trust him, we don't like him. She wasn't listening at first. And obviously, in in reality, she also wasn't listening at first. But in the show, it feels like she comes around and understands maybe faster than it actually happened. Mm. Um, Is that, I mean, tell me a little bit about if, first of all, if that's accurate, but also, you know, what you think that adds to the story and and, um, who that came from. Was that from you? Was that from Connie? Was that from the real Deborah? Um, you know, I actually think uh, if you parse the podcast that Deborah, as far as she's sort of describing her experience, sort of is saying that she knew even earlier mm. than we're saying that she did. That, okay. you know, as soon as he wanted to put cameras in, that she was saying, okay, well, I can watch you with those cameras, which I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, it, it, hindsight is twenty twenty. I don't know if that's what she was thinking at the time. I wouldn't blame her if she was. I I, I don't know if I believe it. Um, you know, so, so, but it does feel like Connie in Connie's portrayal, she questions it once we see those cameras go in too. Like yes. it does seem like you're, you're seeding. Yes. It. Yeah. I mean, she's questioning it 
uh, in a sort of general way, mm-hmm. not questioning like, well, what could your motive right. be? Something bad should must be going on. It's more like, well, this is a strange thing, isn't it? Which, you know, yeah. I think is accurate to, you know, both what Connie's doing and probably what actually happened at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously John did a couple of things that were a little red flaggy. Uh, but uh, to, to go back to your question, you know, I, I felt like, it, the the danger with this kind of material is to play it in the sort of traditional TV movie woman in peril kind mm-hmm. of uh, storyline, which is, you know, everyone sees it. She doesn't see it. By the time she sees it, it's too late. And so I kind of wanted to front load all of that and then have a, like a, a smart woman realize that she's in this situation and also being, you know, torn emotionally. And, you know, as listeners of the podcast and readers of the articles know, you know, there's a lot of conditioning that went into making Deborah the woman that she is, and that makes the fact that she sort of knew there was something up with John did not necessarily mean that she was washing her hands of the situation because her opinions about men and women's relationship to men and, you know, what love means and what forgiveness means and all that kind of thing is very complicated. And I, I kind of wanted to get to that mm-hmm. because I think that's very real and it isn't a woman in peril story. And so you kind of have to get past the, like, they got married really fast. Right. Everyone said it was crazy. Like that if you front load all that, you can get to the, not the really interesting stuff, but the stuff you haven't seen as much. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and in doing that, I mean, you also obviously open it up to see more of her daughter's perspectives, to see John's story from right. flashbacks and right. when he's spending time alone right. without Deborah. Um, what were the complications of, of doing some of those stories? Mm. Well, you know, I always knew that I kind of wanted to explore, you know, for instance, when Jacqueline in the podcast says, you know, he borrows your car, where does he go all right. day? And Deborah says, well, he runs my errands. And it's like, well, how long does it take to go to the dry cleaner and get the Tesla charged? Like, that is that. That is why she put the tracker on the car. And I, you know, as a podcast listener, was like, gee, I wonder where he did go all day. Because once I had a total picture of him, I was like, he wasn't going to work. Right. This was work. So, you know, and then when I found out about, you know, he had the RV in the desert full of all this stuff. And then, like, you know, I, I kind of had the entire timeline of his life from a certain point to the end that I, I kind of wanted to flesh out all of that stuff. Um, and so a lot of those choices were made just because there were questions that I was asking myself when I was listening to the podcast and assuming probably other people mm-hmm. were interested in those questions also. And I had Chris Gofford in my writer's room. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I had access to all of the research that he used to write the articles and do the podcast and all the stuff he didn't use and all the people that he talked to. Um, and so I, I kind of constructed, you know, the walls of the writer's room or that we had a hallway outside the, we have big, uh, plate glass window in the writer's room and outside in the hallway, I was like, I, we got to put the timeline up because mm-hmm. there were so many questions of like, okay, so then when he said he was doing this, he was actually out in cathedral city or like when he said he was in Iraq with doctors without borders, he was actually in prison. Mm-hmm. And then when he got out of prison, where did he go and all that. And so once I kind of had that all straight in my head and I, you know, had access to all these restraining orders that had been filed and all these police reports that were written about him and all that. I was like, I mean, this is, this is its own, at least its own episode. 
Um, and that, that, that was one of the things that was exciting about it to me was to, to really be able to go down those roads. And, and that's, I mean, visually, because with the podcast, you're listening to it here, we're able to actually physically yeah. go to some of these places, yeah. as you're saying, you know, we go to some with, well, Ronnie, who was standing in for Jacqueline, right. uh, as she's investigating, we also flash back with John. So mm-hmm. when, how did you decide which things you actually wanted to show in flashback right. from John's perspective versus other people learning about him? And as you right, said right, earlier, right. judging right. him. Yeah. I mean, I was very rigid and fascist about point of view in the writer's room because, you know, we start in Deborah's point of view and then we go to Veronica's point of view on John, and then we go to Tara's point of view, and then we go to his first wife, Tanya's point of view, but we're never in John's point of view until the seventh, well, until the very end of the sixth episode. You know, some people will realize this, and some people won't, and it's fine if you don't, that, like, when the (laughs) door closes and he's alone in the apartment at the end of Mm. 106, that's the first time you've ever been alone with him. And, you know, and now that means now you're going to be in his brain, which is not the the nicest place to be. Uh, and I think Eric and I were and Jeff Reiner, our director, were kind of um, slightly frightened at how mm. much fun that was, <laughs> which, you know, Eric and I always kind of talk about, you know, actors and sociopathy. Yeah. And I think writers are have to be sociopaths to a certain extent also. Well, you like, want to understand pretend it. to be other people. Yeah. And it's. You know, so yeah, but John, it was we we laughed way too much, like considering what happened to people. But sometimes it was just like I cannot believe we're doing this, or I cannot believe I have to say this, or that mm-hmm. this happened. Um, so what went into the decision to yeah. wait? Yes, I, I you know I I because I knew that I, I I wanted to tell a certain amount of story before we got to him. Um, then I knew I wanted to maintain not being in his point of view until then. And so then that kind of informed the structure in a backfilled kind of way where it was like, well, if we cannot be with him alone until this point, how can we get out certain information? So like in the fourth episode, we obviously are with Arlene, uh, with, with Jean Smart telling the story of, um, forgiveness and what happened to Deborah's sister. But then in episode five, we're sort of seeing John through his sister's eyes, mm. which is, you know, I, I, I said from the beginning and I said to Eric when I uh, was pitching him to do the show, uh, I said, I don't want to try to explain why he is the way he is because I don't, I don't know that there is an explanation. If there is, no one's ever going to know it because right. people's parents have gotten divorced. You know, people had um, upbringings where their parents yelled at each other. I mean, he had other siblings. He has two sisters who are completely wonderful, functional members of society. So it's not that. And it's, you know, maybe he was implanted with a certain sense of superiority by his father, which we touch on, played by Shea Wiggum, who is amazing. And uh, so, yeah, that I I said I don't want to try to explain it, but I do want to talk about it. I at least want to talk about why he chose to try to manipulate and con other people mm-hmm. that where that came from as an idea for your life and that you know his father making a big deal about that they were related to mafia figures whether they really were or not that the, you know the mythology of that so there were a lot of things I wanted to talk about and and because I knew that I wouldn't be in John's point of view till seven it's like okay so I know that in order I'm gonna try to tell these and um, if episode five is his sister then episode six, we were also trying to say a little bit about 
how broken certain systems are mm. that enable John to even be in a situation to meet Deborah in the first place. So like, you know, the, our medical care system is slightly broken. If somebody can be stealing surgical drugs mm -hmm. rampantly from different hospitals, those hospitals fire him, but they don't tell any other hospitals not to hire him. You know, he, he steals surgical drugs and beats up cops and, you know, evades arrest and all that. And then there's a judge that all you have to do is say, well, I'm really sorry. I'm a drug addict. And they send you to rehab and not prison, which maybe is right for someone else. Um, you know, that he gets a 22 month sentence mm -hmm. and then he gets kicked out after 15 months cause overcrowding. Like, you know, I don't have solutions for any of this, but it's sort of like <laughs> when people are saying, when Veronica place. says, why is he out walking around? And it's like, well, from a, from a justice system explanation standpoint, here's the explanation. Mm -hmm. It's not great, but it's there. And so there, there were things like that, that I wanted to talk about before we actually went into John's mind and that kind of informed the structure. I mean, you've mentioned, obviously, that with Deborah, there are things that informed who she was, like her family, her mother, the, the values instilled in her and why she might want certain things that she thought John could give her. Obviously, you're doing that with seeing John's side as well. Do you feel like it's fair to say it's a two-hander or do you, do you yeah. really lean more heavily on the psychology of one over the other? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean... It was very important to me until the John's point of view episode, which, you know, Deborah is also represented mm -hmm. heavily in. It's just more that, you know, she she's being seen rather than seeing that that even when we were trying to weave these other stories in, that that the most important spine of every episode is Deborah. Okay. Um, that it's how all of these events in the past have led to her being the final victim in a way, or the I guess the penultimate victim if you consider what happens to Tara. Tara. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, Tara is in that situation because of Deborah. So Deborah is the prime mover for all of it in that sense. And so you know she's she's our way in. She's the heart of everything because it really is that she has this true kind heart that, uh, that made her put her in John's crosshairs to that extent. So yeah, I, I would say that, um, you know, even though spending time with John is exciting, mm -hmm. that Deborah is the, the heart of the show. Mm -hmm. Cause she's, she's the reason that anyone should hear this story right. because if, if it's because of John, he doesn't deserve to be talked about except in relation to what anyone can learn from what everybody went through. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you mentioned Tara and obviously people who have listened to the podcast know the outcome. Um, what went into how you wanted to depict it? Because it is such a, spoiler alert, fatal situation for mm. John, but it's also such a sensitive situation for Tara because she yeah. was attacked first. I mean, Tara has been down with us since the beginning. I mean, she, I think she, she actually said that her therapist said that it's good for her to talk about wow. it as much as possible. So she, she talked to obviously to Chris about it in the beginning. And then she sat down with our director and described everything that happened. And then she met with our stunt coordinator and described it, you know, from a physical standpoint and Damon, our, our stunt coordinator, who's amazing was so impressed by her. He basically was like, you know, I've dealt with however many like special forces mm -hmm. and Navy SEALs guys who like train for this kind of situation, spend their entire days thinking about like the doomsday scenario mm -hmm. and then they get into it and then they die. Mm -hmm. 
And Tara had all she did was basically watch Walking Dead and like plan these apocalyptic <laughs> mm-hmm. scenarios in her head that like she may or may not have thought would ever actually happen. And then it happened. And then she survived. I mean, she decisively survived. Right. So you know, I I she's she's a tiny little blonde chick, you know, and she she doesn't look lethal and she doesn't sound lethal and she's she's wonderful and sweet and. And yet, you know, she's she's maybe the strongest of all of mm-hmm. them. And, you know, I think it was um, Chad, the nephew in the podcast, who we uh, – is Toby in our show that mm-hmm. said that, you know, the last person I would have thought mm-hmm. would send anyone to hell would be Tara. <laughs> and, you know, but if you meet her, it's like she's she's got a core of steel. So. I mean, in regards to literally how you depict it, I mean, did, were you going for true to life – yeah. Verbatim. Yeah. Okay. I mean, what did that feel yeah. like when you were writing it? When you guys yeah, were shooting? Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was. It was. Um, I mean, I just thank God she survived. Of I course. mean, I you know because if uh, if if she had, I, I don't know that I would even be here talking to you about this. Mm-hmm. But you know, actually watching the the stunt doubles and Julia and Eric who did most of it, watching them do it. Uh, if, if I hadn't already been completely overwhelmed with respect for Tara, watching the size discrepancy mm-hmm. between the two of them, which is, you know, pretty accurate. Like, Eric is kind of John-sized and Julia is kind of Tara-sized. And, you know, Cash the dog who was in there <laughs> working hard, you know, we have Cash the dog. Yep. and and But just watching, it's like to hear it described in the podcast, it's you know, visceral and terrifying and you can't believe she survived, but to actually watch it and, and to, and these, this man isn't actually trying to kill this girl when we're shooting it. Right. You know, we're trying to make it look as, as legitimate as possible, but the, the, the death desire is not there to, to just, it was, it was, uh, we shot it over two days Mm -hmm. on a rooftop in the sun and it was, um, it, it, it was a, a terrifying experience. I mean, uh, you know, and I think, people will be brought into exactly what that was for Tara because it's it's still unbelievable. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable to me. I mean, you said it earlier, the fact that she was in the situation ultimately because Deborah let this man into her life and yet it, it went wrong mm-hmm. in so many ways, yeah. but in a way it almost went right because Tara was able to survive. Yeah, but I mean, the the amazing thing about it is, and I, I don't know that they were wrong, that we, we tried to sort of set up in the show, why everyone thought that if he was going to behave that way towards someone, that she would be the last person that's that I, mm-hmm. he would go after. That we really tried to underline that in in a way that's I, I think even more explicit than in the show. That that you know he he's in a desperate position now and he's starting to do some crazy things and he's being unpredictable. But if he's going to go after somebody, mm-hmm. it's going to be the people that he's angry at, the people that he really has the conception that they've screwed him over. And Tara was not that person. Right. And I think it really speaks volumes about someone who doesn't need any more volumes spoken about them that the one that he went after was Tara in in so many ways that it's like he completely underestimated her obviously he dismissed her he you know it it is a little bit of a microcosm of me too in a way mm-hmm. not that there aren't so many echoes of me too in the show but that that someone would go after the one that he considered to be the disposable one the easy one the one that he obviously did not anticipate having any problem with her and that's why he went after her cuz mm-hmm. he thought he saw her as weak he didn't spend any time thinking about 
who she really was. He just heard this, you know, sweet little voice and, you know, blonde head and just mm-hmm. thought, I'm going to throw her in the trunk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thank God yeah. <laughs> that he that he's such a dummy, <laughs> you know. But, uh, but yeah, just the, the whole thing. Then just to go back to actually watching it, it's like I still, as as the mother of a daughter, it, it just makes you want to spread your wings over the whole family. Like, I'm so glad. But that, because, yeah. I mean, because he was in that sense so unstable and unpredictable, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, it feels like there's a lot that you can learn from yeah. seeing this story. Yes. Where do you want the conversation to be focused? Do you, is there an area that yeah. you say, this is really what I want this show to do? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think Deborah was incredibly brave to tell this story in the first place, but I actually think that she's even braver to be out there continuing to tell the story in the face of all the things she now knows people are saying about her because she did not know when she called Chris Gofford back and mm-hmm. to talk to the LA times, she had no idea. Maybe she, she could have projected it a little bit. Like some people won't understand, but she didn't know the podcast was going to blow up the way it has. Like, you know, it's pretty intimidating. The prospect of having people, that many people say things about you. And she's still out there, you know, banging the drum for this because, you know, she, she was not a person who was necessarily thinking about the concepts of coercive control and, you know, catfishing. And, you know, like I said, she takes people at face value and she's an honest person and she expects people to be honest and you know she's she extends generosity to people and she should maybe be more aware but you know technology's changing so quickly that even the awareness that you know your average person has now is probably not enough to protect them but uh you know i i just the the things that i want i think are the same things that deborah wants that like even it even one person who's having a weird stomach feeling about somebody that, you know, that they're with right now who, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe their story isn't necessarily the most consistent or, you know, you, you've asked to meet their family or go to their house and they haven't quite gotten around to let you do that yet or anything like that to just, that would be worth it. Like even one person, you know, is, Mm -hmm. is contains the entire world. Right. So like, I, I just would love if anybody, you know, watched it and kind of went, huh, you know, and, and then that's fine. I don't care what negative things people say. And Deborah obviously doesn't either. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us thank today. Thank you for it's having to me. Have you. Thanks for listening to this week's show. We'll be back next week with another great episode. We'll be talking with Janet Mock of the FX series Pose. And if you like this show, I'd appreciate it if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Let us know, too, who you'd want to hear from. What stars and producers should we invite on the show? Email us at podcastofvariety.com. See you next time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.